Hello and welcome to Practicing English. And these are podcasts for students of English at B1 or B2 levels, or IELTS from levels 4 to 7, or for those students who just want to improve their general English. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Practicing English. And today it's Friday, so what does that mean? It means that I'm reading another chapter from my book, The Tudor Conspiracy. And today we're on chapter 4. And remember, if you would like to buy this book, it is available on any Amazon platform. It comes with activities for you to carry out while you are reading the book. And today, then, I'm going to start with some words that will come up in the book. And what I would like you to do is to listen out for these words and identify the context they are used in. For example, when it happens, or who does it, or where it happens. And there are six words, and the first one is accurate, accurate, which means to be precise or exact. And the next one is damp, that's spelled D-A-M-P, which means a little wet, humid. For example, your clothes, after it's rained a little. And the next word is Frown, frown, that's spelled F-R-O-W-N. And that is to make a serious, angry or worried expression by bringing your eyebrows together. And the next word is grin, to grin. It's a verb or noun. And it's spelt G-R-I-N. And it means a very wide smile or to smile, or to give a wide smile, a grin. And the next word is rattle, spelled R-A-T-T-L-E, and that means the sounds made by hard things hitting together quickly. For example, the noise of metallic things rattling together, maybe your house keys rattling together, sounds like that. And the next one is to stir. It's a verb, S-T-I-R, and it means to move a liquid with a spoon. For example, the sugar in coffee or tea. Okay, those are the words for you to listen out for and identify the context they are used in. You can find the answers to this little activity at my website, practicingenglish.com. Okay, so let's get on with the story. The Tudor Conspiracy by M. A. Bilber. This recording is copyright. 
Chapter Four: The Mysterious Play. Philip nodded, and then frowned. To be honest, I don't quite understand all this mystery. He looked around and added, "Why don't we go and talk about it over coffee? We could go to the Founders' Arms. It's a pub, just a few minutes' walk away. They've got some nice cakes in there." They both walked side by side along the road called Bankside, next to the river. Philip pointed as they walked. They're going to build a new bridge over there, you know. For the new millennium, it's going to be a footbridge. It could make the globe more popular, and I suppose you saw the building works going on for the the new art gallery. Yes, said Isabel. I walked past them. It all looks a bit bleak at the moment, said Philip, but it should look nice when it's all finished. It was quite warm inside the pub, and Isabel then realised. She had been quite cold on the bus and standing outside, listening to Philip. Perhaps she was still a little damp from her morning run through the rain on Charing Cross Road. There were engravings on the walls of how the pub used to look a hundred and fifty years ago. Isabel liked English pubs; they were comfortable places and quiet, with thick carpets. That absorbed any noise, although Isabel wondered how they could keep the carpets clean with so many people walking on them in outdoor shoes. They went up to the bar and ordered two coffees. There were some delicious-looking cakes on a counter behind a glass window, but Philip asked Isabel if she would like to try a cream tea instead. That sounded new and interesting to Isabel, so she said yes. They took their coffees and sat down at a small table next to the window. The sun was shining now, and the interior of the pub suddenly became brighter as the sun came out from behind a cloud. So, you've been working for old Arthur, then," said Philip, and he grinned. Yes," Isabel answered, while she stirred some sugar into her coffee. "I like him. He's been good to me. He spends time talking about the classics, and I need that for my studies." Philip nodded. "I understand you're studying English literature." "Yes," she said, "at Seville University." But your English is so good," interrupted Philip. "It's it's perfect. I mean, you've got a Spanish accent and all that, but your vocabulary and grammar are spot on." "Spot on," said Isabel, looking up from her coffee, and she frowned a little. "I don't know what that means. Spot on means very precise." Correct," he said. "Oh," said Isabel. "Thank you. I work hard at my English language. If I'm going to be a literature critic, my English must be accurate."
Right, yes, of course, answered Philip. He sipped his coffee and looked at her. He had the impression she was a very serious girl, studious and hard-working. Not really like himself, he thought. Then a waitress arrived dressed in black and with a little white apron around her waist. Two cream teas, she said in a sing-song voice. She put the contents of a silver tray onto the table. A pot of strawberry jam, a pot of clotted cream, two knives, two little teaspoons on the side, and some little cake-like things in a pretty porcelain dish. Enjoy, she said. Thank you very much, Isabel and Philip both said together as the waitress walked off. Uh, These are scones, said Philip, pointing to the cakes. They're slightly sweet. What you do is, and he demonstrated, you take one of these scones and cut it open, then fill it with jam and cream. He did so, helping himself to very large spoonfuls of jam and cream and placing the contents onto the scone. Then he placed the upper part of the scone on top, lifted the whole thing to his mouth and bit into it. Isabel watched, amused. Cream and jam squirted out of the sides of the scone and dropped down onto his plate, onto the tablecloth and a lot more around his mouth. Philip's face and neck went red with embarrassment. Isabel laughed, so Philip had to smile as he wiped his mouth with a serviette. Sorry, he said, I just thought you'd like to try something typically English. I do, I do, Isabel insisted, and she smiled. And I appreciate it. They look delicious too, but I think I'll try one with just a little jam and cream. As she spooned small portions onto her scone, she changed the subject. And you worked for Mr. Fanshawe too, is that right? Yes, that's right, Philip answered, not knowing what to do with the rest of his scone. I worked for him for about two and a half years. You're right, he's a nice guy. We got on well, and I learned a lot from him. I've got a degree in history. The job at the bookshop was my first job after uni. I like history and the classics, but I couldn't do what you're trying to do. I don't consider myself an academic. Philip picked up the knife and played with bits of scone on his plate. I left the bookshop to work here. I like it. It's a new project. Very exciting. I'm going to run the exhibition centre at the Globe and give guided tours too. It's not difficult work and I keep in touch with the world of Shakespeare. It's okay, you know. He looked up to see if Isabel approved. He had the sensation that he was in the presence of a superior being. Obviously, she was very clever and not only that, very beautiful too. You found a job you enjoy. That's not easy in this life. 
you should be pleased, said Isabel. I hope I'll find a job I enjoy too. While Philip started nervously on another scone, Isabel looked out of the window at the Thames, which now looked more brown than grey in the midday sunshine. Her father was head of the English Literature Department at Seville University. He had a prestigious academic position that in Spain they call catedratico. He was much respected in his field as an author and critic. From the beginning he had encouraged, perhaps even pushed, Isabel along the same career path. A job is for life in the university, he would say and a respectable one at that. She was a natural, a brilliant student, and always top in her class. So following the same path had not been difficult. She enjoyed studying literature too, but sometimes she wondered how much of this choice was hers and how much was her father's. Philip had managed to construct a more practical jam and cream scone, and had successfully bitten into it. A penny for your thoughts, he said quietly. A penny for your thoughts, repeated Isabel, looking back at Philip. What a lovely expression. Shouldn't we talk about this play, though? What did Mr. Fanshawe tell you? Philip sat back in his chair and tried to clear his head. Okay. So there are two mysteries here, really. Not only this play of Elizabeth I, but also a new find of a quarto of Henry VIII. The... A what? A quarto? Isabel looked confused. No, a, a quarto. What's a quarto? asked Isabel. Wait, actually I have heard of that. Isabel scratched her head. In the editor's notes in Shakespeare's plays, they often say things like, according to the second quarto, but I've never known what it means. You know I haven't finished my degree yet. I'm not an expert like you. She smiled again. Philip was happy to explain. Well, during Elizabethan times, playwrights, that means people who wrote plays, just wrote their plays as manuscripts, just on pieces of paper. When the play was produced for the theatre, the producer would make a handwritten copy for the actors called a stage prompt. They weren't very interested in printing or publishing the things they wrote, or rather, there wasn't much demand for printed plays. If plays were printed, well... As you can imagine, the bigger the book, the more expensive it was. The largest and most expensive size was called a folio. Philip took a serviette off the table and began to fold it. Take a folio and fold it twice, and you have eight pages, a quarto. As the public were not very interested in buying plays, they were printed on the cheaper quarto size and some of Shakespeare's plays began to appear in quarto format. I see. So, really, it's a size measurement. 
Isabel concluded. Right. The problem was Shakespeare didn't supervise the publishing of those quartos. Some may have been unauthorized copies made from stolen stage prompts. Even today, an editor changes the original script. Perhaps they want to make it shorter, or they take out lines so not to offend people, and that sort of thing. But these days, an editor will always consult the author. This probably didn't happen with the quartos in Shakespeare's time. So this meant that many quartos were inaccurate copies of the original manuscripts, or even bad copies. Isabel was surprised. So the Shakespeare plays we know today aren't exact copies of those that Shakespeare wrote? Well, continued Philip, something happened that probably saved the closest versions of Shakespeare's original plays. Shakespeare died in 1616, but in 1623, two of his friends and colleagues called John Hemmings and Henry Condell got together to publish his plays. As they had worked with Shakespeare, they would have had the original manuscripts, we assume. The plays were published in the larger and more expensive folio format. We believe Shakespeare wrote 37 plays and 36 were included in what we now call the first folio. Many scholars believe the first folio to be one of the most influential books of all time. Philip felt pleased with his explanation. So what happened to the quartos? asked Isabel. There's still around... Nineteen of Shakespeare's plays appeared in quarto format, as most of them appeared before the publication of the first folio. They are often considered valuable copies and referred to today by literature critics as you'll be one day. Philip smiled. Critics will often compare a play with both formats, the first folio and its quarto version. In fact, there may be more than one quarto version. First quarto, second quarto, etc. Isabel nodded slowly. Okay, I think I have understood that. So, what is the mystery about the Henry VIII quarto? Philip sat back in his chair and threw up his hands. There never was one, he exclaimed. The first time we learn of a play called Henry VIII was when it was published in the first folio. Now Mr. Fanshawe is telling us to go to the Bodleian Library and study this quarto of Henry VIII. He told me that it was discovered recently in a private book collection and sent to the Bodleian for analysis. Philip looked at Isabel. Through her large, dark eyes, he could almost see her mind taking in and sorting out this information. Okay, she said at last, but Mr. Fanshawe told me this other play was hidden inside the Henry Eighth Quarto, an undiscovered play called Elizabeth I. That's what he's looking for.
Philip shook his head. You're right, Isabel, but it doesn't wash with me. Isabel frowned at the expression she obviously did not understand. Philip explained. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't wash, we say. Shakespeare never wrote plays about his own lifetime, and Elizabeth I lived and reigned during most of Shakespeare's life. I suppose it was complicated. If you write about the monarchs of your day, you could offend somebody important, and in Elizabethan times, you could lose your life for that. But Mr. Fanshaw should know what he's talking about. Isabel suggested. There was a pause, then Isabel continued. Let's suppose there is such a play. Why doesn't he just contact the Bodleian and tell them? It's hidden in the Henry VIII quarto. I know he doesn't want to go back personally to Oxford. He explained that to me. But why the mystery? He wants me to tell the library staff. What we're looking for. So it's not going to be a secret in the end, is it? And there's something else, Philip said. I thought perhaps if we went along in person, it would be a way of Mr. Fanshaw taking the credit for the discovery of this new play. You know, as though we were his representatives or something. But then Mr. Fanshaw told me that under no circumstances. Should we mention his name? Yes, said Isabel quickly. That's right. He said the same thing to me. Isn't that strange? And what do we do when or if we find the play? I don't have instructions on that, said Philip. Then he added intentionally, because he could see Isabel liked idiomatic expressions. There's more to this than meets the eye. Isabel looked at Philip appreciatively. Yes, there's more to this than meets our eyes, and she nodded gravely. The eye, corrected Philip. The eye, repeated Isabel, still nodding, obviously acting her seriousness. So, said Philip, are we going to Oxford tomorrow? Of course, said Isabel. And trying to imitate an American accent, added, "It's my job." The mimicry sounded hilarious, and they both started laughing. Philip felt relieved. Isabel had a sense of humour. As Philip had a car, he offered to pick Isabel up from her house in Welling Garden City the next morning. He said Oxford was only a short drive from London. Philip walked with Isabel to the bus stop on Bankside. She did not have more work to do at the bookshop, so she decided to go straight home. A bus soon came along that would take her to King's Cross Station, and when they said goodbye, they shook hands with a smile. As the train rattled over the tracks back to Welling Garden City, Isabel gazed out of the window at the English countryside. In the afternoon sunshine, the trees, usually black in winter with no leaves, now had dots of colour. The blossom was now opening, pink and white.
There were flowers among the grass, and England seemed a prettier place. The Shakespeare quote came to her mind. I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite overcanopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine. And that's the end of chapter four. Until next Friday, bye for now. Mm-hmm.